You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 64, the Second Continental Congress begins. On the morning of May 10, 1775, just hours after Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen stormed Fort Ticonderoga, and three weeks into the Siege of Boston, the Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. Now, the First Continental Congress, which I looked at back in Episode 48, had set this date to meet when it disbanded at the end of October 1774. At that time, its purpose was to decide what steps to take if the King and Parliament refused to take acceptable action on their petitions. Well, not only had London refused to consider the petitions, but now war had broken out, and Congress had to play catch-up with what was now a shooting war. Many of the representatives were returning from the First Congress. There were some new faces, though, who would have major roles. John Hancock had joined the Massachusetts delegation, Benjamin Franklin returned from London and sat with the Pennsylvania delegation. Thomas Jefferson joined from Virginia, replacing Peyton Randolph a few weeks into the session. Georgia, you may recall, had not sent a delegation at all to the First Congress. This time, one Georgia parish sent a single delegate, Lyman Hall. A full delegation would arrive a few months later. The Second Congress was more willing than the First to take radical action. Part of that was the fact that prominent Tories who had gone to the First Congress now decided that further participation could be seen as treason. Part of it also was that many moderates had seen intervening events and recognized that the outbreak of war required a new response. The Second Continental Congress essentially broke down into three factions. The most conservative faction, led by men like John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, still wanted to return to the relationship that the colonies had with Parliament at the end of the French and Indian War. Parliament held authority over the empire, but essentially respected the rights of the colonies to govern and tax themselves. Even these most conservative delegates would be considered radicals by Parliament's standard back in London. Most delegates probably fell into a middle-moderate category. They believed Parliament could not be trusted to govern the colonies they still hoped to fashion a compromise with London that would allow the colonial legislatures to govern and tax themselves, but still operate as loyal subjects to the king. They essentially wanted a new power-sharing arrangement that would keep them within the protection of the empire, but otherwise operate independently. Most of the southern delegates fell into this category, as well as delegates from other regions. Finally, the most radical faction accepted the idea that with war having come, there really was no option other than full independence. John Adams and a few other New Englanders had probably reached this conclusion by this time, 
but they dared not express it openly in Congress yet. They realized they needed moderates to bring the other colonies into the fight. They could not afford to scare them away. As events progressed, they hoped that others would accept that nothing would work but independence. Peyton Randolph of Virginia, who had presided over the First Continental Congress, received unanimous re-election to the second. Randolph, a lawyer from one of the wealthiest and most prominent families in Virginia, was a well-respected moderate. Within weeks, though, he had to return home. Congress then elected John Hancock of Massachusetts to preside over Congress. The first few weeks of the Congress were a scene of chaos and confusion for the delegates, as they received depositions from Lexington and Concord. The siege of Boston involving tens of thousands of armed militia was only one issue. Congress soon began to receive reports about the capture of Fort Ticonderoga. All over the continent, colonists rose up, forming armies and confiscating arms and ammunition from public armories. They forced royal governors and even outspoken Tories to flee for their lives. The small contingent of British regulars in New York were stuck on Navy ships in the harbor. The soldiers dared not set foot on land. Royal governors up and down the continent found their positions completely untenable. Absent the arrival of British regulars, each governor realized his options were becoming limited to being asked to leave, being taken prisoner, or joining the Patriot cause. No governor with a royal appointment took that third option, not even Governor William Franklin of New Jersey, who split permanently with his father Benjamin, now in the Continental Congress. Only elected governor of Connecticut, Jonathan Trumbull, transitioned to the Patriot leadership. So with all this going on, one of Congress's first decisions was whether their goals had changed. Were they seeking independence? Were they supporting an armed rebellion? Or were they simply trying to get the king and parliament to move back to the status quo? John Dickinson gave a lengthy speech urging Congress not to go too far too fast. His views had really not changed much since he wrote the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer years earlier to stir up opposition to the Townsend Acts. Dickinson thought they had three options. One was to stop talking to London and simply fight the war. Dickinson raised fears of British-incited slave revolts in the South, using the French and Indians against New England, and devastation by the regular army and navy as making this option far too dangerous. His next option was to continue military opposition while petitioning the king and parliament once again. Although previous petitions had fallen on deaf ears, now that Lexington and Concord had shown the colonists would fight, perhaps London would be more amenable to petitions. The third option would be to send negotiators to London to work out a solution in person. And to Dickinson, this seemed like the best option. Dickinson's position, requesting that Parliament simply restore the status quo, put him squarely within the mainstream patriot thought five years earlier. Others, though, had moved on. Most delegates realized they could never trust Parliament to support their best interests. They wanted complete autonomy over domestic affairs, with only a shared loyalty to the king. And a few, as I said, did not even want that, but they were keeping quiet at least for now. Several delegates spoke in opposition to Dickinson, including Patrick Henry. And even that outspoken Virginia radical did not propose independence. 
Samuel and John Adams both opposed Dickinson's ideas in letters written afterwards, that they did not want to appear too radical to the rest of Congress in the debates quite yet. The Massachusetts delegation still feared that the rest of the colonies would say, you guys are nuts, and leaving them to fight the war on their own. So the Dickinson debates resulted in four votes, the first three nearly unanimous, referring to themselves as His Majesty's Most Faithful Subjects, which had been put in a precarious situation that unfortunately resulted in the battles of Lexington and Concord, and that all the colonies would work toward defending their fellow citizens in Massachusetts, and that they hoped for a restoration of harmony between the colonies and the mother country, though they stayed away from any specifics about what that harmony might entail. The fourth vote passed narrowly, and that was to submit another petition to the king calling for negotiations to work out an acceptable power-sharing plan. The fact that the last vote was so narrow says that most delegates had accepted that the time for talk was really over. Based on the next few weeks, it seems clear that even many of those that supported another petition did not see much coming from it. They would prepare for war. But if you want to send another document to the king, knock yourself out. The final votes on the debate took place on May 26, just one day after the HMS Cerberus landed in Boston, bringing the military reinforcements from London. As Congress debated its new petition to the king, word reached Congress about Allen and Arnold capturing Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point. Now, unlike Lexington and Concord, which could be portrayed as self defense against British aggression, Capture of these forts clearly constituted an aggressive act of war. For the moderates and conservatives still looking for a negotiated peace, this was a nightmare. Although Allen claimed his capture in the name of the Continental Congress, no one in Philadelphia heard of the attack before it was over. It is almost certain that Congress never would have approved it ahead of time. Not only did it create a divide between the war factions and the negotiation factions in Congress, it started a big colonial dispute as well. New York was probably the most pro-loyalist colony attending the convention. The fact that extra-legal committees in Massachusetts and Connecticut approved an invasion into New York without notice or consent did not sit well with many New Yorkers. The fact that Ethan Allen was involved only made things worse. Many New York delegates considered the man a terrorist. To keep New York happy and prevent any further conflict, Massachusetts agreed to turn over the fort to New York, but asked that the cannon be shipped to Boston for use in the siege. There is actually very little in the congressional records about Ticonderoga, and apparently most of the discussions were done in committee and without much written record. What we do know, though, shows Congress simply was not ready to start managing a war even before it decided to create an army. But when the Dickinson debates were over, Congress in early June finally turned to the matter of creating an army. It was clear that the Massachusetts Provincial Congress was in over its head. The Massachusetts delegation had been pushing all along to get the other colonies more involved in the fighting. When Benjamin Church arrived with news from Boston and Joseph Warren's request that Congress take control of its army, Congress got down to business. After a few days of debate, Congress agreed to support a 10,000-man army in Massachusetts and a 5,000-man army in New York. 
The army in Massachusetts already far exceeded 10,000 men, so I guess not all of them would be able to go on the Continental payroll. Many of those besieging Boston were happy to stay in their militia and not join this new Continental Army. The New York Army would need to incorporate New York militia, which had not flocked to Boston in significant numbers. But with the capture of Crown Point and Ticonderoga, New York would likely have to defend against a British invasion from Canada. Congress also made an effort to ensure some of the middle colonies at least got involved in the conflict. It called for six companies of riflemen to be raised in Pennsylvania, still one of the most reluctant colonies to commit to the cause. Maryland and Virginia would also raise two companies of riflemen each. To pay for all of this, Congress authorized raising two million Spanish dollars. Now this act alone probably needs explanation on multiple levels. First, why are we using Spanish dollars instead of pounds? The Spanish silver dollar had become common currency throughout the Americas. Spanish colonial gold and silver mines had sent their product to mints, also in Latin America, meaning lots of this hard money circulated all over the Western Hemisphere. A shortage of British hard currency in America caused colonists to turn to Spanish dollars. About four Spanish dollars was worth about one British pound. Spanish dollars were often broken up into eighths. I mean, they literally broke the coin into pieces. And this is where we get the term pieces of eight that you sometimes hear used in pirate movies. The pieces were also called bits, which is why today we still call a quarter of a dollar two bits. Calculating the authorization in Spanish dollars meant that no single colonial currency would be involved and that the authorization would likely hold its value, unlike colonial currencies, which often sank with inflation. So where did Congress get the authority to do this? The Continental Congress really was just a meeting of colonial delegates to discuss foreign policy. It had no authority to raise taxes or spend large sums of money. The Congress decided to simply act on its own. It called on each of the colonies to pony up the necessary funds. Now, success in collecting that money was mixed at best and would prove an ongoing problem for the next decade or so. But for now, Congress would issue paper notes, essentially IOUs, promising to pay the bearer in Spanish hard currency at some point when they could get their hands on it. For now, we cannot worry about money. We've got a war to fight. And, you know, maybe we'll all be dead before the bills come due anyway. So having approved the creation of an army, Congress next had to select someone to lead it. Doing this was no easy task. First, there were no experienced generals in America, unless you count militia generals, many of whom may never have even seen combat, or those guys in Massachusetts that the Provincial Congress made generals a few weeks earlier. This new leader would have to create a whole new army and put it into battle against British regulars almost immediately. But military ability was only one consideration. Another was loyalty to Congress. Next to defeat, the greatest fear of many delegates was that they would create a successful general who would become the next Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan general who overthrew King Charles I and then Parliament a century earlier. Armies had a way of turning into dictatorships. Any military leader could not have anything even hinting at such an inclination. Another consideration was diversity. 
political leaders wanted to make sure the new commanders would represent many different colonies. If all the colonies were going to participate in the fighting, they simply could not be seen as joining a Massachusetts army. A continental army had to be truly continental, with leaders from the north, south, and middle. Congress considered a number of people, and although this debate did not make it into the records, we know from letters and other recollections what delegates were debating among themselves, probably mostly in evening discussions at taverns over a few beers. One of the top military leaders allied with the Patriot cause was Charles Lee of Virginia. He had served as a lieutenant colonel in the British Army. He had seen combat in America and Europe during the Seven Years' War. He had served in Polish and Portuguese armies to get more battlefield experience when Britain was at peace. But unable to secure a full colonelcy, Lee retired from the army and moved to Virginia in 1773. Now he was in Philadelphia offering his services to Congress. Despite his battlefield experience, Lee was a professional soldier and a bit of a mercenary, having served in several foreign armies. Congress was not quite ready to hand over command to someone who might not be completely dedicated to the political cause. Another consideration was Artemis Ward, the current commander-in-chief of the Massachusetts Provincial Army, since he was already essentially doing the job. But Ward was old and had already proven sickly on several occasions. Besides, Congress really wanted to look outside of Massachusetts. Not even the Massachusetts delegation was pushing for Ward. John Hancock also got some consideration. He had been titular commander of the Massachusetts militia at one point, but he really had not commanded men in combat. Besides, he seems to have taken the political route, becoming the president of Congress. He was also from Massachusetts at a time when everyone seemed to be looking for someone from another colony. Horatio Gates also got serious attention. Like Lee, he had served for many years in the British Army, rising to the rank of major, and eventually retired in Virginia. Gates was old enough to have fought in the War of Austrian Succession. He followed General Braddock to America at the beginning of the Seven Years' War, marching alongside fellow officers. Thomas Gage, Charles Lee, and a militia officer named George Washington at the Battle of the Monongahela in 1755. Gates served throughout the war and as a peacetime officer through the 1760s. Eventually, however, he realized he did not have the money or influence to further promotions and retired to a farm in Virginia. Again, Congress liked his experience, but was not sure about his dedication to the cause and Congress to make him overall commander. Finally, there was George Washington, the delegate from Virginia, in a classic case of dressing for the job you want, not the job you have, began attending congressional sessions in his Virginia militia uniform. Although Washington had experience in the French and Indian War, he had done little to distinguish himself during the war. He lost most of the battles in which he fought, and never had a commanding role once the regulars arrived. He had tried to get a commission in the regular army, but failed in that result. He had been commander of the Virginia militia, but had primarily been a ceremonial leader for the past decade, pursuing instead the life of a gentleman farmer and part-time politician. He had not even taken up arms when Virginia had fought Lord Dunmore's war against the Indians a year earlier. 
All that said, Washington seemed to meet many of the criteria. He had decent military experience. He was from Virginia, which would help bring the South into the war. He seemed dedicated to the idea of civilian rule and to congressional authority. According to some, the tall, silent Washington just looked like a military commander. Perhaps it's not the best reason to choose a commander based on looks, but it seems like it was a factor. John Adams rose on June 15th to propose a new commander-in-chief. Evidently, he had not discussed his choice with the members of the Massachusetts delegation. As he began his speech, according to several witnesses, John Hancock thought he might be the nominee. After a few minutes, he realized Adams was talking about Washington, which his change of expression made known to everyone in the room. Washington immediately left the room so the delegates could debate without him present. After surprisingly little debate, Congress unanimously selected Washington. There's no evidence that Washington wanted or sought this position directly. Some historians argue that he didn't really lobby for the job because it would have been unseemly to campaign for the job, which is true, and that Washington was only subtly jockeying for it by wearing his uniform to Congress and on working on all the military committees in Congress. Washington did see himself as a military expert and probably expected to get some high-ranking commission, but he was not a theater commander and he probably understood his limitations. His reaction immediately following appointment indicates that even he questioned his own ability to serve as commander. In his acceptance speech, he said that he did not seek the job and questioned his own capacity and experience to fulfill its duties. Now, perhaps this was false modesty, but Washington repeated some of his own self-doubt in numerous letters, including to his wife, in the days following his appointment. Still, he accepted the job and spent the next few days getting his affairs in order and preparing to make the trip to Boston. Washington further endeared himself to Congress by refusing to take the proposed $500 a month salary and instead agreeing only to seek reimbursement for his expenses. Now, unlike the First Continental Congress, which sat for less than two months, the Second Continental Congress continued in session for the next six years. It then morphed into the Confederation Congress. So we'll leave it for now in June 1775 and come back later to discuss its ongoing debates. Next week, we return to Boston, where fighting erupts once again at the Battle of Bunker Hill. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, and welcome back to this week's American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Now, before I get to my recommendation, I want to thank those of you who have made PayPal contributions to help keep this podcast going. There is a link to my PayPal account on most of my newer blog articles, which you can see at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Even a contribution of a dollar or two is greatly appreciated and helps keep this podcast running. Another announcement this week. Uh, I try not to put too much date-specific material into this podcast because I know many of you are listening weeks, months, perhaps even years after I first published these episodes. But if you are keeping up to date and happen to live in the Philadelphia area or South Jersey, there's a Revolutionary War event happening at Red Bank, New Jersey on Sunday, October 21st, 2018. This is the former site of Fort Mercer and the anniversary of the battle fought there during the war. There will be a battle reenactment, some living history, and some general festival events. Admission is free, and it should be a fun day for the whole family. The site is a national park now, and it's right on the Delaware River, across the river from the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And it's right off I-295, so very easy to find. Anyway, I plan to go to the event. If anyone else is interested in going or meeting up, just let me know. You can tweet me at amrevpodcast or email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. I'm always happy to meet up with anyone interested in talking about the revolution. Okay, so on to this week's book recommendation. This week's episode focused on the Second Continental Congress. Now, most books about the revolution focus on the war itself. You know, the men who picked up guns and marched toward the enemy. We look at the lives of military leaders and how they challenge the enemy in the field. Those are interesting and compelling stories, and will probably make up the bulk of my podcast episodes as well. But a critical part of history was not the fighting, but the political side of the revolution. There are important debates on political theory, but there's also the actual politics of convincing leaders to agree on their political goals and making sure they can get the people to go along with them. There's also the need to feed, clothe, arm, and equip an army and ensure its leaders are competent and effective. All of this also requires lots of money that needs to be raised. Delegates to the Continental Congress had to deal with all of these issues even while they were deciding on the rules for themselves and where they were headed. Today's book, Our Lives, Our Fortunes, and Our Sacred Honor, by Richard Beeman, focuses on the First Continental Congress and the first year or so of the Second Continental Congress up to the Declaration of Independence. It explains these chaotic years and how the delegates tried to reach their goals. Even delegates who did not fight on the battlefield knew they were putting their lives on the line by participating as leaders in what Britain regarded as treason. This was serious stuff, you know, Game of Thrones kind of stuff. If you lost, you did not go home. You hanged. The crown confiscated your land, 
and your family survived on the charity of others. In his book, Professor Beeman provides a closer look at how these men interacted, how they went from being a group of almost self-selected leaders to convincing the colonies to become free and independent states, all while supporting an army in the field against one of the greatest military powers on Earth. The book itself was published in 2013 and is just over 400 pages, so it gets into a fair amount of detail. It includes in its appendix a copy of Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence, so you can compare it with the final version. Uh, It also has some notes at the end, of course, but is not extensive. The author, Richard Beeman, sadly passed away about two years ago. He had been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and had written a number of other books on the founding of the United States. I'm so glad he was able to leave us with this final work, Our Lives, Our Fortunes, Our Sacred Honor, as it does focus on something that most Revolutionary War books do not. If you want to have something that focuses on the early years of the Continental Congress, this book is it. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.